That's very true, isn't it? It kind of makes you cry almost, doesn't it? It's kind of sad. Um, but today is Father's Day, and we are so blessed. I am so blessed to have one of the most amazing dads that anybody could ever ask for. Um, I am just truly grateful for my father and what he meant to me in my life. And I'm sure there's, all of you have gotten amazing stories about your dads. But if you are a dad today, could you just stand up and let us thank you a little bit so you don't have to be bashful? You can shout. Yes. Um, if you all stay standing, if, you're, if you've got kids around you or if anybody's around you, if you'll just put your hand on these dads and let me pray for them and um, just, just encourage them for just a second. Dear God, thank you for these dads. As the video showed, things are just so much better with dads. Um, so we just thank you for these dads and how they have stood and protected their family. They've encouraged their family. They're raising their family in godliness. I pray that you continue to strengthen them as they lead Continue to strengthen them as they shape and mold their families to be after your design. Just thank you for what they've done in this church, how they've um, just been so integral to so many different things. Just thank you for the, the establishment that you've given in, in husbands and wives and the marriage and how great that covenant is. So God, thank you for these men. Thank you for these husbands. Thank you for these dads. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome blossom. You guys are awesome. That actually rhymed. Did anybody hear that? That was pretty cool. All right, so today I've got the privilege of talking about Titus. Um, one of my favorite things about Titus is the fact that it fits in one landscape page in my Bible. So you don't have to flip. It's just all there. Um, you can just hang out with me. Um, and I do not, it is not my custom to have cheat codes. And so on the screen, you're just going to have the fill in the blanks. But I have given you plenty of space in case you want to fill out your shopping list or figure out where you want to go eat later. You can just start crossing that stuff off. Um, so there's plenty of space for you to fill in notes for the mere fact that just maybe possibly I might say something that might, you might want to write down. I doubt it's going to happen, but on the mere case that somehow it does, you have space to write it down. So uh, we'll uh, go ahead and get off into this. Uh, I was telling Brittany we're headed to the beach right after this, so uh, you'll be glad to know this is going to be short and sweet. Um, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, but we're going to head to the beach and, and have a nice little vacation. That's where Keith is. He's coming back from the beach today. And so we're having just like a little flip-flop. Everybody's just going to the beach and coming back. So it's kind of fun right now. But we're heading down there with the Bethes to have a little QT family time. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so I'm just letting you all know. Sorry. Everybody's <laughs> jealous right now. Um, but uh, Keith, uh, we're going to continue on in the New Testament study. And today we're going to be in Titus. And Titus is a phenomenal book. It's, it's full of... Um, so many amazing things, and I'm so blessed to be able to talk about it today. Um, it's just full of insight from Paul. Paul actually went on many missionary journeys. If you turn to the back of your Bible, I'm sure many of you have this uh, sweet little index in the back of my Bible. Um, I've got, you know, Paul's first and second missionary journeys, and then his third missionary journeys. I've got these sweet little maps um, that are very helpful um, for stuff. And so you can look back there and see that Paul would go on these missionary journeys. And this book that he's written to Titus is after one of his missionary journeys to Crete. And so Paul has gone to Crete, and he's uh, kind of helped. And Paul's nature was to go around on these missionary journeys and to start, form, kind of begin these churches. And so he would go on these long expeditions and, and help the churches form. And so you can see all these books in the New Testament, most of them are written by Paul, back to somebody or back to a city to strengthen, to help, to encourage the church. And so this letter is no different. It's Paul writing to Titus, who Titus is in kind of in charge of the churches at Crete. Now, if you're in my shoes or if you're in Titus's shoes and you're trying to form a church and start a church, I'm going to want a little more than this. 
I mean, I'm going to want like a manual, uh, how to start a church for dummies, you know, something like that. But here's what Titus has got. Paul has written this concise, quick little letter to Titus to teach him, here is how it's done. And so this is not original, but if you want to write this down, it's pretty sweet. Um, The whole book of Titus, this sums it up. It's about the inseparable link between faith and practice, belief and behavior. That's the whole book summed up. So we can pack it up, we can head on home, I can get to the beach. Y'all ready to go? Um, It's the inseparable link between belief and behavior, faith and practice. This entire book. If we can kind of give you a brief little overview, he gives proper leadership. Elders, uh, proper church leadership is found in chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. That's leadership in the church, how to get church uh, uh, elders and all that kind of stuff in place. Handling of errors, when there's error in the church, is found in chapter 1, 10 through 16. 3, 9 through 11, if something's wrong in the church, if there's some issues, there's a lot of false teachers going around this time. That's right there where you'd find it. Christian living is, living is found in chapter 2, 1 through 10, 3. Chapter 3, 1 through 2. And then source of all godliness is found in chapter 2, 11 through 14. And then in chapter 3, 3 through 7. So here's a general outline of what, what this book is about. As you can see, if you're going to start a church, if you're going to plan a church, if you're going to um, start understanding what a church is supposed to be about, Titus is where you're going to go to. And so for me, instead of giving you an overview, here's what I'm going to kind of do. I'm going to kind of talk about chapter 1, 2, and 3. Um, and give you the three verses in each that I just really couldn't overlook, um, that I had to kind of spend time on and kind of had to dwell on. And so the first one comes from chapter one. I thought we'd go chapter one, two, and three, and then um, be easy as ABC. Chapter one, verse one is where we'll start. So if you have your Bibles, um, and I hope you do, I hope you would just follow along with me. We won't be doing a lot of flipping. It's all right here. So chapter one, verse one says, "Is Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, here we go. This is where I'm going to stop for a little while. This little clause, this little comma, who never lies, comma again, is probably one of the most profound things that I've read in Titus. As you can see, it's very bold. God never lies. It's very simple. It's straightforward. It makes perfect sense. God never lies. But it's so much deeper and so much more profound. It makes so much uh, more clarity in our Christian lives to know that God cannot, he will not. It's apart from his nature. It's impossible for him to lie. Now, there's been movies made about this, and I'm sure a lot of you parents wish that your children had this innate ability to not be able to lie. You get home from curfew late. What's the deal? What what happened? Got to tell the truth. Guys, I'm sure there's many times where your wives come out and say, does this dress make me look fat? Women, I'm sure you wish your husbands had the innate ability to not be able to lie. Maybe, I don't know if that's a good case scenario or not. But you wish in so many cases that your husband, your wives, your children had this innate ability where they could not lie. Because of godliness, God cannot lie. Because he is so good, he cannot lie. And so all through the Bible, you see God promises these amazing things and he gives us this wonderful stuff in this word, but he cannot lie. That is one thing about his character that we can take to the bank, put it down, uh, mortgage your house on it. He will not, he cannot lie. It's impossible. Now, what's interesting is our adversary, who is Satan, as it says in John 8, 44, is anybody familiar with this? He is the father of all lies. It's kind of a yin and yang. That's the same thing. Yin and yang type thing. It's God who cannot lie and Satan, who is the father of all lies. We see where this is just clashing of the titans here. We have God who it says 
in Hebrews 6, 18, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So it's not just cool that God doesn't lie. That's not just some cool fact. It's awesome because we have hope in a coming life because he cannot lie. He has promised us hope in Jesus that we have eternal life through him. And that is the promise that we can take to the bank. But the crazy thing is how Satan works and how he maneuvers and how he gets in and deceives and lies. This is something that I've done with the youth a couple of times and it makes so much sense and it makes this whole thing make so much more sense to me. If you remember in the garden of Eden, God had set up this perfect perfection, this utopia this huge garden, right? We've all heard this story many a times. And God has promised Adam and Eve these amazing things in the garden. He said, if you will abide in me, you will have fullness of life. You will have perfection. You will never have to want for anything. All is good. You've got this amazing, huge garden. Well, they're, they're beep bopping along. They're having a great time. And then Satan kind of slithers in and he, uh, he comes and talks to Eve. And he's like, surely God didn't say that, right? Surely God didn't say that. And if we have a little picture that might, uh, the first part, surely the waters look good, right? Surely that apple looks pretty good. That, that fruit, it looks pretty good. Surely it won't kill you the way God says it will. Surely it's not that bad. Yeah, God promised you eternal life, but how could a God that loves you that much do all that? It's kind of like this. He shows you, wait, wait, we can go back. We can go back. Oh, goodness. Just imagine you didn't see that. It didn't happen. Take it out. Um, this, is what, this is what Satan likes to do. He likes to give us a little window, and he says, surely that water looks amazing. And I'm bringing up beach again because I'm going there this afternoon. I don't think y'all are, but I am. And so you see again that Satan has shown Eve this little picture and says, surely the water looks good. You're hot. You're tired. Wouldn't it be great to jump into the ocean? Wouldn't it be great just to have this fruit? And Satan continues to, to pick on Eve and just say, Eve, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't it look good? I mean, that looks good. Now you know it's already there. So. But this is how Satan works. He gets into our psyche and says, surely God, the black, don't worry about all that. Don't worry about it. The water is good. The water is perfect. It's cool. It's refreshing. Just jump on in. This is how he deceived Eve. Eve, surely the fruit is good. Surely God didn't mean what he said. And then as you can go ahead and see, that the waters are infested. That, that apple, that fruit had so many more ramifications than Satan could have ever told her. And see, the difference between God and Satan, one of the main differences is this, that God will always tell you the perfection of his plan. And Satan will share a little window into what sin is. And yes, sin looks so good and so refreshing and so tasty. But in the end, it, it, it bites, it stings. As I was talking to the youth Wednesday night, we kind of got into discussion about marriage and dating and characteristics of godly uh, dating and, and marriages and stuff like that. And I was telling them about how when we date or when we marry, we should be looking for characteristics of a husband or a wife. And I accidentally said we date to mate. And I promise you that's not what I meant. We date to find a mate. Um, and so please, if you hear any, anything, that's not what I meant. I promise you. Um, we date to find a mate. Um, and so the characteristics of what we're looking for, um, sorry, uh, don't tell Keith, we'll cut that out. Um, but uh, the characteristics of what we're looking for are found in places like the fruits of the spirit, that when we're together, those fruits of the spirit increase, that we look for a husband or a wife that we make us more patient, 
that make us less envious, that makes us less strifeful. And then one of the characteristics I talked about that is a perfect representation of this is found in Proverbs 5 about the adulterous woman and how her lips breathe and just and, and drip of honey. And they drip of honey and, they, and, it, and it tastes so good, but in the end, her feet lead down to death. This is exactly how Satan works. The sin looks so good, the, 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 the waters look so good, but in the end, her feet go down to death. In the end, you're just swimming in shark-infested waters. And so I'd ask you this. How many of you are swimming in shark-infested waters? One, but how many of you have bought in to this picture that Satan has, has given us? If you look in Romans 1.25, I think you've got the best picture of this whole scenario wrapped up by Paul. He says in, in, in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read it for us. In, in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 25, he talks about how we've, we've exchanged the created things, the good things of God, for a lie. It says this, Therefore God gave them up to their lusts, of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their, bo- dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. And here's the thing I want you to see. So many of us in today's world, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we worship created things instead of creator. What this looks like practically is that we've worshiped the created thing of affairs or of uh, marital unfaithfulness instead of the truth about God in marriage. We've worshiped uh, money and all that money brings instead of trusting in a God that provides in all ways. We've, we've turned from worshiping um, God who provides all joy and entertainment and, and just life to worshiping a created thing such as TV and internet and cell phones and all that kind of stuff. We've, we've substituted the goodness of God for created things and we bought into the lie that Satan is feeding us. And it looks so good. It drips like honey and it looks like fresh water, but the end it goes down to death. And, and the, the thing that kind of shocks me a lot is a lot of times youth and, and young people will say that Satan's got no power over me. Satan's weak, Satan's nothing. Satan is a, is a worthy adversary. He is mighty good at what he does, mighty good. None of us are able on our own to defeat Satan. It says in First Peter that he is like a roaring lion. I can't say this word, roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you've ever ran into a hungry lion, um, I guarantee you, you did not have the better end of that fight unless you had a lot of weaponry. Uh, um, okay. Um, a roaring lion is like our adversary, seeking someone to devour. And so I want you to be aware of his schemes, of how he works, and how he tries to get you to look into that picture and say, that is good, and not worry about the fullness of what he's saying. So that's... Point number one, umro number one, God never lies. Never. He cannot, he will not, he shall not. Uh, whatever version you're reading, you'll say the same thing. He cannot lie. Secondly is this, teach what is good. Paul going through his lesson is trying to say, hey, Titus, make sure you're teaching what is good for you older men. This is good for you to hear. It said older men in verse two, chapter one, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. As it goes on, it says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be looked down upon. Now, 
older women, younger women, older men, younger men, whatever it is, this is your calling. This is what God is saying. This is good for you to be like. Now, I want give to you, give you just a word of encouragement as you older men. When I was growing up through the children's ministry and the youth ministry in college, I went to a lot of Bible studies, a lot of little sermons, a lot of little weekends, retreats. And I want to give you a stat that you might find staggering. I remember two sermons that entire time. Two. And so y'all are not going to remember anything I say. I mean, I'm well aware of that. You're going to, I remember two sermons from junior high on to college. Two. But what I've got ingrained in my brain forever and ever and placed on my heart is how I saw my Bible study leaders, my mentors, how they love their wife, how they love their kids, and how they put away a lot of things that they could have done to help other people out. I noticed that. When I would go into their homes and they would, they would have like a compassion kit up on the, on the refrigerator, I'd be like, what's that all about? And they'd tell me about it. I'd be like, oh, man. So y'all like go without cable so you can help this compassion kit out? I'd go further and I would see like, hey, y'all are giving up your vacation time to go to Ecuador? That's ridiculous. And as I learned over time, it's not them teaching me these amazing things. It's them living this stuff out on a daily basis where I could see it. It was phenomenal in my life how it impressed upon me how good God is because of the people that he put before me so I could see how good he truly was. And for you older men, if you want to have a tremendous impact on the younger generations, it's going to take you getting out of here and moving over there where the kids are. It's going to take you moving out of here and getting in context where you can help younger kids out, whether it's tutoring them, whether it's uh, coming on Wednesday nights and being a part of small groups, whether it's going and helping with the children. At some point, we need older men and older women to step up and start training our younger kids. Because if they see y'all, if they see the news, if they see celebrities, if they see all that, they're going to turn out like what they see. I am a, uh, a small representation of my dad. And for some of you, you'd be scared to say that your kids might be a small representation of you. But I hope that our kids will be trained up like our dads and like the people they are around. And I hope that we will step up as a church and start training our kids well. That our older men will step up and start getting over there and stop sitting around and doing nothing. We need y'all desperately. Need y'all desperately. Because the funny thing is it says older men be self-controlled. And the only thing it says about younger men is to be self-controlled. If you've met any younger guys, I see a lot of them over here. One of the few things they don't have is self-control. And so we need some older men to teach them what self-control means. Uh, if y'all saw the donuts I bring in the morning and the lack of self-control that goes on with those guys, it is unreal. Um, some of you older men, I don't know. It looks like y'all been eating a few donuts too. But, um, um, and so teach what is good. I ask older men, younger men, please be in context where you can teach people about how good God is through your life. I see so many, so many, so many Facebook statuses, so many like wall posts, so many like great words written down, but I need to see some action. I need to see some people going out and serving in these contexts. Writing about it just isn't enough. We've got to start doing. And see, this brings me to my next point. We've got to be prepared. Paul makes it very clear that we've got to be prepared for every good work, every good work. One of the scary things that I read here is in chapter 1, verse 16. It's probably the scariest thing I've read in here. And it says, they profess to know God, and it's talking about the Cretans. And if you know anything about the Cretans, it's pretty much talking like the Cretans are like the worst people in the world. They're awful people, 
Even one of their own, it says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's not a good indictment on the Cretans. Um, but he's talking about these people, and he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. I pray that we are not a people that profess to know God, but deny him by what we do. And so many times we say, man, it's those Presbyterians. They're giving us a bad name as Christians. It's those Baptists, it's those Methodists. They're the ones giving us a bad name. They're the ones that are professing to know God, but they're not, they're not following through. I think it's time that we stop saying those people are the ones giving us a bad name and start saying maybe we're not giving God a good name. Maybe we're not being zealous for good works as it says very clearly in verse 14. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, let me make it clear. You are, you are not saved in any way by works. If you do a thousand things, that's not gonna put you any closer to Christ. You are not saved by works. You are saved for works. You are saved so you can start living and doing what God has called us to do. And so it says that we are to be zealous for good works. Why are we supposed to be zealous for good works? Why are we supposed to be on passionate for good works? Because of this. It says in verse 10, chapter 2, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, what does that mean? It means that in everything that we make God look great, that we make him look high and mighty and majestic. We don't make him look like a wimpy God who's done nothing in our life, and we make him look like that when we sit in here and sing wonderful songs but do nothing for him. When we say he is good, when we say he is awesome, but we don't show how awesome he is in our lives, he looks like a wimpy God. In verse 10, again, it makes it clear that in everything we adorn the doctrine of our God, we make God look great when we show a world how great he is in our lives. And yes, it's not going and giving clean water to an entire nation. It doesn't have to be something huge like that. Yesterday I was out, Friday I was out, uh, we had a youth lake day at Robbins Lake. It was phenomenal until, uh, y'all might be aware, uh, a like, huge hurricane came through. I don't know what happened. It was just a downpour all of a sudden. But I was out there getting set up and uh, getting some, some speaker systems going up so we could play some music and stuff. And I don't know what happened. I must have made a, a wasp mad, but it stung me right on the back of the knee. I don't know. This is like the worst thing I've ever had happen to me. But this wasp stung me on the back of the knee. And at that moment, God was teaching me this wonderful lesson that I just realized yesterday was that it doesn't have to be these huge things. That tiny wasp stung me on the back of the knee, but it made me like walk around like, oh, I couldn't even walk. Uh, Brittany gave me some drugs and I was like out and it was awful. But it came from this tiny, tiny, tiny little wasp. And sometimes some of the biggest impacts we can have is doing the smallest, smallest things. Our children are having a big event where they're going out to give cookies to firefighters. And I think that's the most God honoring thing I could ever think. Kids baking cookies for firefighting, firefighters saying, we love you, we appreciate what you're doing, God bless. And sometimes I think, hey, we gotta be zealous for good works. We've gotta go out and like change the entire world tomorrow. Why not start with baking some cookies for some firefighters and saying in Jesus' name, we love you, we appreciate you. Like Jay goes out and cooks for the Wildlife Federation, just saying, hey, we appreciate what y'all are doing. I think we overthink this stuff so much and say, we've gotta make God look amazing. We've gotta make him look amazing. Let's change an entire nation. Let's change an entire school. Why not just change somebody? It makes God look amazing. It makes his cross look phenomenal. 
when we start doing stuff for his name. One way that you can do that, too, that might not be all that popular, is it says in verse 7, show yourself in, in chapter 2, verse 7, excuse me. It says, show yourself in all respects. Now, I'll stop right there. It says all respects, not respects such as when you're in church, when you're with your buddies, when you're with your family. Those are the respects you're going to show a model of good works. When you're everywhere, everywhere. It says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may, put, may not put us to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything there to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Now, many of you have bosses that you dislike and many of you hate your jobs or hate where you're working, but do not let that be an opportunity for you to ruin your witness. It says in everything and many of you are slaves to a boss that you don't wanna be with, but it says very clearly to be well-pleasing so that, so that in everything, whether you are at work, whether you are with your kids, you may make the doctrine of God our Savior look beautiful. That's when God starts looking phenomenal in our lives and when is everything, whether you're teaching a baseball camp, whether you're on the golf course, whatever you are, you're making God our Savior look wonderful. And yet it starts with little small things like a wasp on the back of the knee. It starts small. But as we start to move and start to get out of our couches, out of our lazy boys, out of our chairs, out of our houses, things start happening. And so that's why it's very clear that Titus gives us this, the inseparable link between faith and practice, belief and behavior is because the church makes God look great when a church serves. This church will be phenomenal when it serves. Its people are phenomenal when it serves. And we need people to step up and serve. And so this entire book of Titus is written to a church to set it on fire, to serve and make the doctrine of God look great. And so I'd ask each one of you, have you begun to buy into the lie that Satan has? Have you begun swimming in that small little picture? Have you exchanged the good things of God for a lie, creation instead of the creator? Where are you today? What can you take away from this? Do you need to start teaching? Do you need to start showing? Do you need to start living the way that God has called you to live? Because I, I wanna remind you, God cannot lie. He cannot. And the one thing that he has promised is that we have hope in Jesus to make all things new, to start over, to be who he has called us to be. Take it to the bank. God will not lie. He cannot lie. I'm gonna ask Jeff and the band to come up. I'm gonna pray for us. Uh, we got like a, a song and a half or two songs left. I don't know. If y'all want to come up and you need to use this altar, of course, it's always open. Um, but I ask that you just spend some time as we pray now to just, just examine yourself. Paul makes it very clear that we need to look, our, look at ourselves in the mirror and see where we've fallen short, see what we need to work on. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get to uh, worship some more. Dear God, thank you for this day. God, I, again, I thank you for my own father, what he has meant to me in my life, how he has grown me up in the faith. I pray that each one of these men would be men after your own heart. God, just thank you for the message that you gave Paul to give to Titus. I pray that we are able to use it in our own lives and we are able to not buy into the lie, that we are able to live a life that is pleasing to you and that we would adorn the doctrine of our God with all, with all due grace. God, you are good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
taken over our lives so as we sing this one last time with everything that we've got would you lift high the name of Christ as our hearts pound for Christ sing it out you are the love everlasting our hearts are pounding for you and your glory come we shake the We'll see you next week.